that building was in uh, Detroit. It was called the Pontiac Silver Dome. And like a lot of things, um, it became kind of popular the older it got for people to go in and do uh, pictures, take pictures, or make videos there and curate those and then post them on the internet. And it's crazy because the Pontiac Silverdome for a long time was one of the cultural centers in America. The Detroit Lions played there when this really good running back called Barry Sanders, one of the most electric running backs ever to play. Um, the, the Detroit Lions played there. 80,000 people would be there, and they'd be screaming. Uh, War, uh, World Wrestling Federation, WrestleMania three was held in the Silverdome. The Pope spoke there once. At one point in time, the NBA Finals was, was played there. There were tons of huge events that happened there. Those were events that we can go and we can look at. Like You can find them on YouTube and, and, and watch them. And you see how that building was so full of life. And then when it came time for that building to not be used anymore, there was a rather large period of time where it just kind of stood there and they were trying to figure out what could we do with it? Could we sell it off for parts? Could somebody um, come in and, and, and make something out of it? And it just deteriorated and deteriorated and deteriorated. In fact, all of those uh, white pieces that were all over the place, that was actually the roof of the dome that at one point fell in and, and collapsed and they never did anything with it. And, and the creepy thing about it to me is while it was standing, it was even more depressing than if they would have just blown the whole thing up and imploded it. Because when they let it sit there and, and rot, the astroturf kind of flipped up and, and there were even still some electronic equipment in the press box. There were still some dishes in the luxury suites that you can see if you go online and check out some of the photo essays. And it seemed like, man, there was so much potential here. And there was so much life here, and the fact that the life had been taken out, but that the thing was still standing, was just a reminder of, of how far things had fallen. And, and wouldn't it just appease everybody even more if the whole thing just got wiped out and we wouldn't have to remember the good old days? When you were listening to um, the, the word of the Lord that was spoken from Jeremiah 2, there were a lot of hard words in there. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And in fact, the book of Jeremiah, we're just going to hit some chapters throughout the course of this semester because it's so heavy and it gets a little bit dark. And I thought, you know, we don't just want to spend the whole semester feeling just like oppressed by the heaviness of this book that talks about the evil and the sin of the world. But it was still something I think that's important for us to explore. And when I consider Jeremiah, I almost consider him looking out over, over the people, God's people, and kind of looking out as he would look out over this silver dome as he would say, man, there, there, there used to be so much life here. Something was, was good here. And now it's been ripped away from us. And just as there were people who were hoping that the silver dome would come back to life, I think Jeremiah was hoping that the people themselves would experience some kind of resurrection, that the people themselves could once again realize their former glory, and the goodness that they once had. At the beginning of chapter 2 there, it talks a little bit about what was going on in Jerusalem back in the day. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, and said, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. 
your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Jeremiah loves to use that covenant language. He loves to talk about the, the people of Israel as being this, this, this bride and them being totally smitten, totally in love with God. And, and he talks about a little bit there uh, what, what that looked like. They were so in love with God that they followed God for a long time, even though the journey was difficult. They followed God in a wilderness, in a land not sown. That means that they were not presented a place for them to be that was ready-made. It wasn't as though they, 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 they hired a realtor and, and the realtor came and, and showed them this lovely house where everything was, was, was finished and everything was perfect and they could just move in and, 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 and sit in that place and make it home. No, they, they, they followed God on a promise and there was trust there. And, and as, as they worked through that trust, and sometimes those, those trust issues, even as sometimes they were disobedient, they continued to follow God through the wilderness in a land that was difficult and in a land that was not sown. And God remembers and asks the prophet to remember, remember who we were back in the day. Remember that covenant that we made and how tight we were together, and how wonderful, how fulfilling, how whole and complete things were. Just as I'm sure that there are people today in the city of Detroit that sit around and they talk about those memories that they forged going in and watching football games on Thanksgiving Day with their kids. People who had deeply spiritual and, and religious experiences there. Currently, I'm talking about World Wrestling Federation, not the Pope. No, but like, you know, like people, people had, had these moments. And I'm sure that, that they sit in their house and then they reminisce about those things. And they're like, man, do you, do you remember back in, in the day when we had those moments and we had those moments in that place? And so then we listened to, to all of those words that Brianna spoke, and, and there were so many of them. The, the beautiful thing about the book of Jeremiah, especially at the beginning, is if you look at it in your actual Bible, it's written out as, as poetry. And so what the prophet is doing is, is the prophet is saying, there's some art here into what I'm saying. And, and he gave so many images there, and he talked about so many places. There are a couple of things that I wanted to, to, to point out. One, very general, and then a couple that are very specific. When we think about how did God's people go from being in this wonderful covenant relationship with God to being in a place of extreme vulnerability, because what ended up happening by the time we get to Jeremiah, Isaiah, when you get to the end of Isaiah, he kind of tags Jeremiah out. There's a little bit of an overlap. But what's happening here is the people are getting ready to go into exile. They're on the precipice of exile. And as we get deeper into the book of Jeremiah, they will be firmly in exile. And then when we get to the end of the book of Jeremiah, they'll be coming out of exile, but it won't be like they're totally back and, and, and rocking and rolling at full speed yet. And so Jeremiah has to ask this question, what happened? God, through Jeremiah in verse 13, gives a bit of an explanation. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
These two general things, these metaphors that the prophet is bringing to the people, that first evil, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Water is not something I think that we treasure very much because it's very easy for us to procure. It's incredibly easy for us to capture. In fact, I took two showers today. That's a lot of bathing for people in most parts of the world. I can procure my water in different ways and put it in different things. I have numerous appliances that I used in my house today that pump water automatically through them, spray down my dishes, rinse out my clothes. All I got to do is push a button and throw in some soap, and it happens. As I was walking out of the house today, I picked up a bottle, a plastic bottle of water that had been prepackaged for me. And it was clean water and it was good water. It has to be good because it had like Star Wars branding on it. I think that's how you can always tell that stuff is, is, is the best. I even have two different systems in my house of obtaining water. We have the water that we use indoors, which is the water that comes from the city, the water that we pay for. And then we have this well and the hole for the well is in our basement. And that well, the reason we use that water is because we don't have to, to, to pay for it. It's not stuff that we would necessarily want to drink, but it makes my grass look real pretty, especially in the hot Kansas summers. There's this panel in my basement where I can set six different zones to disperse water at different times throughout the day, and they can disperse different amounts of water so that my front yard, which is really big, can get a lot of water, and my wife's garden can get a smaller amount of water, but it can get it over a more extended period of time because we've installed drip lines. To me, I have no idea in my life, what it means to be at want for water. That was not the case with the people of God. They lived in an arid place. They lived in a dry place. They lived in a desert. And so one of the the, the most important things to figure out how you are going to get it and how you are going to use it was water. It was a scarce commodity. And they had figured out some some really creative ways. There were some aqueducts that were built from springs throughout Israel and Judah. There were wells that were dug and, and, and people could walk down to these wells. The crazy thing about these wells is um, they tended to be at a little bit of like an altitude difference from where people lived their life. I was looking at some, some pictures of, of one of these places where people would go to get water and you have to like walk down multiple flights of stairs now. They wouldn't have had stairs back then, but now there's stairs with rails and you would walk down and, and you would take your containers and you would dip them in and whatever you wanted to get back to your house, you had to, to, to carry with you in some kind of clay pot or some kind of, of, of leather pouch. And so your entire day, your entire day was governed by this question of when and how am I going to get my water? Because if you didn't have your water, you couldn't drink in the desert. And if you didn't have your water, then you couldn't wash your, 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 your things. And if you didn't have your water, then that makes it incredibly challenging to cook. And so your entire schedule, your number one priority is how am I going to get water? That changes the way that we then perceive this text because what God is saying is that the people have forsaken me. They've turned their back on me. They don't prioritize me anymore, but that is not because I have lost my value. 
Because how does God explain himself? God explains himself as the fountain of living water. That is a doubly strong statement. It would be one thing if God just said, you have forsaken me and I am your fountain of, of water. That would have been a, a very emphatic statement because God would have been saying, even with just those words, you are forsaking the thing that is most important to you. You are forsaking the thing that you should be chasing after that when you wake up in the morning, you think, how am I going to get some of this? How am I going to ration it through? Throughout the day, how am I going to utilize it well? It's something that you are always going to be wanting more of. But God goes even further than that. And God says, You have forsaken me, and I am your living water. In addition to all of these things that you use water for, there's something about my, my presence in your life that even goes above and beyond survival. It allows you to thrive. And you have turned your back on me. And not only have you turned your back on me, but but then you've replaced me with something that is counterfeit. With with, with something that that, that is not of of even close to my quality. Because what you have done is you you have hewn out cisterns for yourself. When you could have come to me... And I could have been your fountain of living water, this thing that cannot be, be turned off, this thing that would always be flowing. Instead, you went and you tried to, to, to dig for water for yourself, to procure water for yourself. But what you did, like, you didn't do it right. You didn't go to, to, to something that could actually give you what you needed. You carved out this bootsy old broken cistern. And so it's, it's leaking and it's not providing for you what you need. You have gone to all this work, but you still thirsty. But, but you still thirsty when what you needed was in front of you the whole time. Specifically, well, what did this look like for the people? If we jump ahead to verse 31, the prophet says this, And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? When the, why then do my people say, we are free, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love so that even, the, even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things, you say, I'm innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. How much you go about charging, changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too, you will come away with your hands on your head for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. There are three things it seems here that the people of God were doing that, that particularly rankered God himself. And I think, I think this, um, what, what I don't want you to hear, um, is this idea that like, okay, I think we're all going to hell. We're in trouble now. What I do want us to hear when we read this is to take a step back and to think if these are things that trouble the heart of God this much, 
then how are we in our lives being called to change? Specifically, those in America and those in America who I think a lot of us, maybe not all of us, profess faith in Jesus Christ. Because there are these three things that the followers of God at this point in time were or were not doing that were not in line with who God had called them to be. And when I look at this, my jaw kind of hits the ground because I, I think to myself, these are some of the incongruencies that we have with, with our character and what we say we believe and then what we actually do. God calls on the people and, and, he, and he, he asks them, how is it that you are using your freedom? Because what the people had apparently been doing is saying, we are free, and so we do not need God. Whereas what they should have been saying is, man, thank God for this freedom. How can we use it to bring glory to the name of God? And so what they did when they forgot their ornaments, when they were the bride who forgot their attire, they exchanged their identity for something that was counterfeit. And they exchanged their identity for something that was worthless. They forgot their God. Days without number. And the first thing that we see, how well you direct your course to seek love so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. One of the things that we will see in the book of Jeremiah is how we use our bodies is important. How we use our bodies is important. Because first and foremost, God uses this covenantal language to define what his relationship is to be with his people. And so then when we enter into covenantal relationships with each other, those should then reflect the holiness and the glory of God. And what God is, is saying here is like, like, look, y'all are out here just, just, just in, in licentiousness. All you're doing is, is you're seeking pleasure. And quite frankly, this is, a under, this is what we call an underhanded compliment. You're pretty good at it. Because even the wicked people come to learn things from you. The wicked people come, come to, to you, the so-called people of God, to learn how to be sensual. The, the, the wicked people come to you to figure out, oh, like, like, how could we do this better? How could we be bad better? And that's a problem. And God is saying that, that what you have done is you have exchanged this notion where what you do with your bodies is supposed to remind everybody else the faithfulness that God has shown you. You are not being faithful to each other. And you refuse to change your ways. Secondly, also on your skirt is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. The second thing that the people of God weren't doing that I'm a little bit worried that, that, that the American church isn't doing as well as we can is this, of, of taking care of the poor, of taking care of those in the world who have been victimized and who are vulnerable. And, and, and one of the characteristics of the people of God that you see ever since they were released from Egypt is that, that, that you will be hospitable to people. 
in that there will not be this class stratification and you will always welcome the alien and the foreigner in your land. And what does it say that, that they were doing? No, like, like even around them, there is this culpability because the lifeblood of the guiltless poor is on their hands. And it's not enough for them to stand back and say, man, we have a lot of compassion and empathy on them. I wish we could have helped out. No, God is saying you should have been involved in their lives. And you should have been ushering them in this world, in this kingdom, into some kind of wholeness and into some kind of completeness. You should have been the blessed peacemakers, and you were not doing that. And so you have this sensual culture, and you have this culture that is, is, is not taking care of the guiltless poor. And then what are they saying? What is their orientation to that? They're not saying, oh, man, we feel really bad about this. No, they're saying we're innocent. And we think that we're standing out here as some kind of light, as, as a beacon on a shining hill. And in fact, God's judgment on us, it isn't even just because we're doing what we are supposed to be doing. And God is saying that could not be further from the truth. And so what is going to happen here is I indeed am going to bring my judgment because my anger has been turned from me and it has been turned to you. You refuse to change your ways. And unfortunately, when the people heard that, their response was not to run back to God. The people of Israel, they were kind of caught in this in-between place where there are a lot of powers around them. There were the Syrians, there were the Egyptians, there were the Babylonians. And what they decided to do instead of running to God, after God lays this case out, is they decide to run to other kingdoms for their protection. And God says, you can run to them for protection, but that protection is not going to last. And eventually you will come away with your hand on your head for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. This alliance may look strong and it might seem like, like, like the smart thing to do. But the thing that you are being called to do is maybe not always the rational thing. It's the thing of faith. And the thing of faith is to be humble and it's to be repentant. That what God calls us to be is the worshiping people who understand our place in history, but who understand that God has authority over all of that. And so what we have to think about tonight for ourselves and for our own lives, for ourselves and for our own communities is, are we centering ourselves on the wellspring of life? that God offers us. You know, Jesus borrows this language. There's a time in the New Testament where Jesus is, is uh, down at the well. And he's down at the well at a day and a time. Sorry, he's down at the well at a time where he's not really supposed to be there. And there's this other lady who's down there at a time where she's not supposed to be there. And the reason that she's there at the time where she's not supposed to be there is because she um, would have been considered one of these wicked women, one of these women of ill repute. 
And so she's not really looking for a lot of drama, right? And so she's not going down there when everybody else is down there because she doesn't want the looks and she doesn't want the teeth sucking and she doesn't want the neck rolling and she doesn't want people side-eyeing her. And so she goes when she thinks nobody else will be down there, but Jesus is down there. And the reason that Jesus is down there is because Jesus has a divine appointment for her. And when he starts to talk to her about why are you down here, It's not a question as to what are you going to do with this water that you are packing up. And in fact, when Jesus tells her that he can lead her to to, to living water, to living life, what he is calling her to is a newness. What he's calling her to is a humility, to turn from whatever it is that she is about right then, those false precepts, those things that she has exchanged for worthlessness. And he's saying, lady, come and find your value as a child of God. And so the thing that we are going to do this semester is to talk about how are we going to find our value? How are we going to realize it? How are we going to embrace it? To be the children of God that he has created us to be. Because you know what? Unlike the silver dome, our plot in life does not, at the end of the day, have to be total destruction and annihilation. The silver dome does not exist anymore. It's gone. It's been wiped out. It's pieced. But you know what? For us, for those of us who can think back in our lives and think about those times that we were really living, if we are dead inside right now, God can revive that. God can transform that. God can take what is dark and put light in it again. God can take what is dead and give us life. One of the things that we do on Sundays is we like to take some time just after we hear from the word of God to respond to the word of God. And what I promise you is this, is that we'll always let you out by eight o'clock. But one of the things that we want you to do is just have the discipline to be in this moment. That even if the words that the prophet...